In business, you rarely hear the expression for life. You make a purchase for a product, for a service, and, and there's, a, there's a time frame there. Well, that's not the case with Awaken 180 weight loss. Allow me to explain. You know, a year ago, I started with Awaken 180 weight loss and had incredible success losing weight. But you can lose all the weight in the world and not keep it off. And what good is it? That's why I have support for life from Awaken 180. Yeah. I mean, I go back for check-ins and make sure everything's going smoothly. But if I ever had a problem, the counselors are there to get me back on track. Why don't you do what I did and call for a consultation? 844-346-1800. 844-346-1800. Or go to Awaken180WeightLoss.com. Hi, I'm Ethan, and I love muzzleloading. You're listening to the I Love Muzzleloading podcast. I'm just a little flabbergasted here. I just got off the phone with our guest today, Frank House. If you don't know him, Frank House is arguably one of the most legendary long rifle builders still working today. And uh, I was very fortunate to be put in contact with Frank via my good friend, Ian Pratt, who we've talked to a lot over this last year. Frank is a very, very humble and down-to-earth man. And uh, it was a real, real pleasure to sit down and talk with him this afternoon, and I'm very excited to share this with you. So without further ado, here's our conversation with Frank House. Hey, Ethan. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing good. Boy, it's uh, it's real cold up here in northern Indiana today. We're getting some snow, which I don't appreciate. Oh, holy cow. And neither well, do my I, chickens, I... so... <laughs> <laughs> well, all that shit's headed our way, I reckon. Yep. God. Be a couple uh, cold days. All right. Well, <laughs> get it and get it out of the damn way. Yep. <laughs> uh, Ian said you were uh, you were a really really good host and a really good uh, question asker. I guess he said you <laughs> asked all the right questions. So. You know, I'll just follow your lead. How about that? I think Ian might flatter me just a touch. No, but he's a he's a good guy. How long have you oh, known yeah. Ian? You know, I've known Ian, I guess, twenty plus years. Uh, he kind of he came in and uh, did a gun making seminar up at uh, Canner's Cave with John and Herschel, mm-hmm. and. Uh, and then I met him like a year or so after that. Okay. So it's been 20 plus years. Super guy, super talent, super talent. Does it, does it the right way in my opinion. Yeah. And he's just always, I mean, I'm fairly young. I mean, I'm only 27, but since I've started talking to him, he's been just so forthcoming and just so yep. kind and sharing whatever he yep. knows, you know, to help me out, which I really appreciate. Yeah. Well, and, and he is, and and I think that's uh, that's a little bit something new on the scene here in the contemporary gun making world. I know when I first got into this, you know, I started out with Herschel, mm-hmm. you know, working in his shop, and I actually started out sitting on a stool watching him work when he had his shop over at Morgantown, and you know, and he he moved out of there in nineteen seventy two. Okay. And I would sit on high stool and, and watch Herschel work, you know, as a 10, 12, you know, 10, 11, 12 year old kid. <laughs> and, uh, and I learned a lot just sitting and watching. Of course, he told stories and made it entertaining. And of course, it was just fun as hell. And I hated school. <laughs> so I took every opportunity I could to skip school and go sit it, to go sit and watch Herschel work or visit. Then we got to forging. Uh, when he moved out to the, the place he has now out on Frames Road in uh, 1972, he set up a little forge shop there. He had a like a chicken cook. We cleaned it out, and he set up a little mm-hmm. forge. And John and I got to going out there and forging. So we were literally 13, 14, 12, 13, 14 years old. Wow. And burning up all of his coal yep. and burning up all of his iron courses, using that old high sulfur cheap coal that to get around here is awful stuff. <laughs> awful. 
I mean, he built a fire out of that stuff, and the smoke would be so thick you couldn't see anything for an hour. <laughs> oh, it was awful. All the high sulfur coal. Oh, it was nasty. Nasty stuff. But, uh, you know, I know going to Friendship, I think I went to Friendship probably the first time, I believe in 1979. Uh and, you know, there was quite a few guys up there that wouldn't share a damn thing with you. Mm-hmm. Nothing. Now, Herschel was always awfully good about, you know, telling you what was going on and not telling you a bunch of crap. There was a, there was a bunch of people, you know, in the 60s and 70s that would tell you the wrong thing just to put you off track. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I'm not kidding here. I, you know, I'm kind of the link between, uh, you know, the way I kind of look at it. I'm kind of a link between the old guys mm-hmm. and the, the new guys. Yeah. You know, I worked with the old guys, knew them all, and worked around them and put up with their BS sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> and you know and i think there's there has kind of been a little bit of a a revolution there in a way you know with yeah. with the way people share things now and the way people how open they are if you ask a question you know you're going to get the answer you may not like the answer you get but you're going to get an honest answer yeah and you know it wasn't necessarily that way when when i got started like I said, that was plenty of old farts that wouldn't show you or, or tell you a damn thing. Yeah. And I've heard that a lot that, and it's always been something I've seen at events or, you know, at the CLA show or something where, you know, people are real timid to ask questions because of, you know, the way it used to be. And, and there's, there are people still like that. And I don't fault them at all for that, you know, holding their information and the things that they've worked really hard to discover uh, really mm-hmm. close to the chest. But what do you attribute this kind of change in that too. I don't know. I think, I think there's just a whole group of us that realize that, you know, if we're going to keep this thing going, we've got to encourage these younger folks, you know, to, to get involved and be involved and and do their own thing and, and, and do good work. You know, I, it's like I've said, you've got to be about half nuts to spend your whole damn life working on a trade that's been obsolete for 200 years. (laughs) And, you know, I have. I've spent my whole life working on this, and I don't want to see it go away. Yeah. How old are you now, Frank? 61. 61. Yeah, I turned 61 December the 16th. Well, congratulations. Woohoo! Yeah, I made it this far. (laughs) (laughs) Which, which I had grave concerns about, you know, at certain points in my life. Oh, I can imagine. Oh, I'm just teasing. (laughs) (laughs) We'll just take it one day at a time, buddy. There ain't no sense in worrying about it. So you you talked a little bit there about how you got started kind of studying Herschel or, or, you know, working maybe not working with Herschel, working around him, you know, and, and, and burning up his coal, like you said. But Well, yeah, we hung around. Like I said, John and I, my younger brother, mm-hmm. John House, uh, he's only 18 months younger than I am. But then again, see, Herschel is uh, Herschel's 19 years older than I am. Okay. He's 20 years older, uh, 21 years older than John. So, you know, Herschel's almost like a second father at, at, you know, at a point in all of this. Okay. And uh, my father was a boiler maker and worked, worked like a dog and worked overtime to support his family and everything. There was lots of time dad wasn't around a whole lot, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Left before daylight, got home after dark and went to bed and got up and did it all over again. So, you know, Herschel was, you know, he was a really a wonderful guy back then. You know, he was, uh, you know, had a good personality and was patient and didn't get upset over things. And, you know, it was really kind of magical. And uh, I started out boiler making. I actually started out welding in the shipyards. I went to Votech and uh, under the old CETA program. And took welding school. I'd already taken machinist, uh, a machining class mm-hmm. in Botech in high school, 
But I, in my eminent wisdom, I quit school. I hated school so bad. I actually quit school twice. Really? And I, I didn't get enough uh, good out of it the first time, so I went back just so I could quit again. <laughs> <laughs> Which is actually the truth. I'm not even, I'm not oh, even elaborating you. too much there or hyperbolating. So I went to, uh, got in the old CETA program at Votex school up here at welding and, uh, went up and took a welding test at Jeff boat shipyard in March of 1978. I got my GED and passed the damn welding test which is the worst thing i ever did in my life and went up there to work i had barely turned 18 year old as a welder first class wow and and, and god almighty i had no idea it's like going to prison except they just let you go home at night <laughs> it was pretty rough place to work for an 18 year old kid i can imagine still wet behind the ears and had never really been outside of anything bigger than Woodbury, Kentucky, which the population is 81. And I went to Jeff Boat Shipyards across the river from Louisville. Uh-huh. Uh, but then I got in from there. I went from there and got got in the Boilermakers and worked there on a, a, a permit hand, uh, which was on, you know, it's just a, if you had skills, they would let you go to work, but you weren't a journeyman. You really weren't part of the union. Mm-hmm. And then I got in the apprentice program, but work was really, really, really tight. And so I started working with Herschel when I was off. I'd work with Herschel out there building guns. I started out there in 79. I was 19 and built, I think, seven guns out there with him over the next two or three years. Mm-hmm. And uh, then in 1988, uh, there again, I was a journeyman bowler maker by that time, but work there again, work tightened up. There wasn't any work anywhere. And I just had a little shop there and I went in and I went to Sears and bought a bandsaw and a spindle shaper and a grinder and set me up a little shop, went to work, started building guns. And then when they called me to go to work bowler making, I said, kiss my ass. I'm staying here. <laughs> <laughs> and I always said the last year I was a boiler maker, I made $44,000. And the first year I was a gun maker, I made 4400 <laughs> I can imagine that was quite the change. Yeah, it was. It was. It was. You don't do this because you intend to get rich at it. I yeah. don't. I know everybody in the business, and I don't know anybody that's getting rich at it. <laughs> that's what I hear. Not doing it the way we do it. Yeah. It's a labor of love. It is. It is. It is. I, and absolutely. And it's art. You know, mm-hmm. it's art. Uh, you can make it art or you can make it a task or you can make it just, you know, uh, craft work. But, you know, there's uh, the, the really top guys. They're they're artists, you know. Yeah. I mean, you obviously think about it now as an, you know, especially your work is as an art form and, and you're doing it because of the art form and you love that art form. Do you, did you have an interest in that when you were welding and, and working as a boilermaker there? I was. I, I did. I've always really been good with my hands. I've just always had a talent and a knack for being able to to do clever work. Uh, you know, even as a kid, I was making really some very nice knives. I mean, hell, I was forging swords when I was 16 years old. Oh, wow. And, 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 you know, and there again, Herschel never done any, any of that. So I just had to figure it out for myself. And I've always kind of been a problem solver. You know, I'm not a good archivist. I'm not one of these guys that can remember everybody's name that I ever met. And I'm not one of these people that remembers, Every, you know, circumstance I've ever been stuck in, Mm -hmm. I've got a good memory and I've got a really good memory when it comes to pictures of guns and things like that. But I'm a problem solver. And that's the way I approach things. You know, I, I, I don't necessarily have to know how to do something to figure out how to do it. Right. And that's what I've always been really good at. And when I was a boiler maker, I did the same thing. I was the actually, 
uh, I won the, uh, I was the apprentice of the year 1985 out of our local, local 40 in E-Town and went on to compete in the national uh, graduate, a new journeyman of the year nationwide and won that. Wow. So, you know, when I was an, uh, uh, really an exceptional welder. But the problem is when you're doing construction work like that, there's just not a lot of incentive. There's not a lot of reward for that. Let's put it that mm-hmm. way. If the weld because, holds, it's good. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, you're welding. I, I mean, you know, at some point it's a damn job and you got to get the job done. Mm-hmm. And you can do it pretty or you can do it adequately. And at the end of the damn day, nobody cares. <laughs> it, it, all too often. Now, there's, yeah. there's instances where it does matter when you're doing high pressure welding and all that it's a it's a different ball game and i was one of the best at it in our local and uh and it is rewarding to a point but it's not like doing what we're talking about now yeah you know this is art on its highest highest level as far as i'm concerned i i I could agree with that definitely i used to think that a fine oil painting you know, from the Renaissance was the was the peak, but uh, anymore, I think uh, right up there, you know, a nice long rifle is is, is peak <laughs> peak artistry. Well, I'll have to tell you a funny story. Of course, everybody knows David Wright. Mm-hmm. David is a great, great dear friend of mine, and he's actually we're related. We're actually cousins. Oh, really? His mother his mother was a house, and yes, and they're all out of the same group right here. David's mother, and he was actually from Rosine, Kentucky, over here. Just just you know the next county over and we were talking one day and david said well i've got to get a knife made but i can't really afford your work your work is just too expensive i said well david if you really want to get set on fire have some son of a bitch paint you a picture of a knife (laughs) (laughs) he said uh I don't really have a reply for that. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> uh, to me, you know, uh, David Wright is is definitely one of the finest contemporary painters out there. Oh, uh, absolutely! And <laughs> oh, absolutely! And I love David. We torment we torment each other. Oh all yeah, time. we have a lot of fun, and and I respect his work so much, and and I think it's mutual. Absolutely. Yeah. Just hearing the uh, the dynamic between you just sounds like uh, a family barbecue would be pl- pretty ornery. <laughs> oh, it is. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And there's a lot of good folks. And, you know, we all have a good time. And I, I tell you what, there's not – I don't think there's not a lot of jealousy in this business. There really isn't. Uh, I've been saying for years, you know, there's not enough money in this to really attract the jackasses. <laughs> That's you a, know, they go yeah. somewhere else, you yeah. know. You know they're they're fixing wrecked five thirty Mercedes or something. They're they're not hanging around this. There's just not enough money in it to to attract that group of people. And the people that are here are, are in it for genuinely, you know, general genuine interest. Yeah, and love of the art forms and the crafts and the way of life and you know the the whole long rifle culture. You know the. Everything that goes along with it, it's all interconnected and it's all, it's all interlinked. Yes. I think that's what's so neat about it. I think your, your comparison to restoring a car is, is really appropriate because I mean, now you're seeing older cars, even up into the, you know, in the nineties now start to be super valuable uh, for a car that's not nearly that old or really as nice as, you know, some older cars that are out there. But um, it's a whole different culture than you have with with muzzle loading or, or long rifles and, and the artistry behind them. Right. And I right. wonder if that's because there's, you know, to a certain extent. Uh, I mean, when you get down to like metal fabricating and shaping and things, there's there's certain skills there. But uh, you know, when you think about working on a car, or tightening a bolt, you know, just about anybody can do. But when you get into long rifles, it's it's from an era where it it took true artisanship. Well, and, and you're exactly right. And, you know, and there's there's different levels of this, and there's room for everybody. And I've always preached that. Don't ever look down on anybody. I love Don't that. ever look down on the guy that's, you know, putting together his first Thompson Center kit. Mm-hmm. Everybody starts somewhere. 
And, and you know, there's some people will be satisfied with that and never want to go any further. Yeah. And that's fine. That's fine. That's absolutely wonderful. I mean, you know, it's all about individuals and it's all about what you want to do. And, and folks, you know, I talked to the Jim Chamberses of the world and the L&R lock company guys, and mm-hmm. I talked to all these people, and they're telling me they're, they cannot keep up with the demand. It has been a crazy year. And barrels and triggers and parts. So who in the world is buying all this stuff? <laughs> well, you know, it's the hobbyist, and it's the guy that put together the Thompson Center kit and took it and shot it and wants to move up, you know? And so he goes, buys a, you know, a Pecatonica kit or mm-hmm. a Jim Chambers kit or a Jim Kibler kit, Yep. you know? And they put that together and then they go buy a gun stock and they decide they want to build something from a square and keep pushing. And there's people that stop all along the way in that journey. You know, it's good enough for them. But then you get to the people like me and, uh, you know, a little little small group of us. And I'm not going to start naming names because I'll leave somebody out. I have no intention <laughs> of that. You know, there's a group of us that yeah. are really, you know, that are damn, damn serious about what we're doing. You know, yeah. forging locks and forging gun barrels. And I'm not saying I do that every time. I don't, but I have done it. I've got the T-shirts and the scars to prove it. So you, you talked about, you, you, you know, you told the Boilermakers to go to hell in 1988. Mm-hmm. And what, what happened then? I mean, now you're, you have work in the Smithsonian and a ton of magazines and you're, you're Frank House. I mean, you're an icon. And so what did that look like from 1988 to <laughs> nearly 40 years now in 2021? That's a great question. Great question. I remember thinking... I remember thinking uh, in 1988, I was standing out there and I had built two guns and I was taking them to friendship. One was an order and one was just to sell. And I was going up there and I was hoping to sell it. Uh, it was a nice rifle. It had a big 47-inch uh, Getz barrel on it. I had done some lock work to it. And yeah, it was a big iron-mounted gun, nice gun. And... Uh, the price was $1,200. Oh, my goodness. Is what I wanted for it. And and I thought to myself, you know, if I could just sell this gun, I could buy enough parts to build, a, you know, at least two more guns and go home and pay, pay the uh, house payment and buy some groceries and get me through to the next six weeks to maybe where I could build another one, have another one done. Mm-hmm. And... I remember also in the shop, you know, thinking you're coming up with this like this five year plan or this two year plan and this five year plan and then a 10 year plan where I kind of wanted to be, you know, as far as my personal education and status and stature and what I was getting out of my guns. And and I came up with a 10 year plan. The only problem is it's been. 32 years and I still ain't there. <laughs> so really it's all, all it's ever been about is just surviving. Yeah. I mean, you know, and I've had some really lucky breaks and I've got to do some wonderful things and I'm really, really thankful and I'm really kind of blessed in that manner. And I don't take it for granted. Uh, but I tell you, it's, it's been through hard work. You know, I, I, we never cut corners. I never cut corners. I never shirked my work. I was always learning and I always learned at my own expense. Mm-hmm. You know, if I experimented on something and it failed and I had to throw it on the trash heap, it came out of my pocket. Right. You know, there was no one there subsidizing what I was doing or I never charged a, com- a you know, a customer for my damn mistakes. Mm-hmm. I think that's and kind I of made, the American and way. I made plenty of them. <laughs> right. I'm a pretty impressive scrap pile. <laughs> hmm. That's fascinating. I mean, I'm going to have to look at an inflation calendar to see what $1,200 in 1988 <laughs> is today, because I know it was a lot more than $1,200 today. 
but I think yeah, it would still well, be worth it to, to yeah, have a well, Frank House gun. Yeah, well, I mean, when you just get started out, I mean, there you go. You've got to pay your dues. And, yeah. you know, and I've always said this, too, you know, in this business and any business, really, but in, in this business, in, in artwork, craft work, you're going to pay your dues. Mm-hmm. Now, you can pay them on the front end or you can pay them on the back end. And what I mean by that is you can get in there and you can do your damn homework and you can get yourself your education and you can work to improve what you're doing and you can learn the basics and you can apply that. And when you come out of the other side of that, it may take you four years, five years, six years to, to, to get to the point where you really ought to be doing some really good work. Mm-hmm. Then you paid your dues. Of course, I don't know. I don't think you ever get done paying your dues in this business. <laughs> or you can, or you can go out and you can kind of do the whole fraud thing. Mm-hmm. You can get magazine articles written about you before you're ready. You can advertise doing things that you're really not doing or really not capable of doing, and you're going to pay your dues on the back end. Okay. Because when you're you're when you're where you ought to be, you ain't there. And then you can't do the work that you're advertising that everybody thinks you're capable of. So what advice would you give to somebody, you know, at the point where you were in, you know, 1988 and before, you know, somebody my age that said, you know, I, I look up to people like Frank House and I want to learn more and I want to do more and. You know, regardless of, of not being rich, I want to I want to build guns and and kind of live the house way. Well, you'd better make sure that that's what you want to do. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, first up, you'd better make sure that that's what you want to do because it's painful and there's got a whole lot of bumps and starts, and you'd better have a pretty clear idea of what you want to do. Mm-hmm. I mean. You know, where are you going to be happy? What are you going to be happy with? And I know all that changes, and I didn't have a damn clue when I first got started, to tell you the truth. And it evolves. And, and you know, we you kind of touched on this just a little bit, but I really want to kind of emphasize the fact that if, if you're actually a, 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 a top-level gun maker, not a gun stalker, Mm-hmm. You know, not a not a gunsmith, a gun maker, where you're capable of making your own mounts. You're capable of doing lock work, forging springs, forging, you know, doing the layout, creating this stuff. You know, if you're capable of doing your own engraving and your own carving. You know, yeah, let's just kind of go down through just a little, just a little quick list of all the things that you've really got to be proficient at. You don't have to be an absolute master at all level, mm-hmm. but you have to be absolutely proficient. You have to be a, a, a blacksmith to forge the mounts, to forge those springs, you know, even forge gun barrels. Yeah. You, you have to be a, a whitesmith. You have to be able to finish the work. You have to, you know, figure out what it's supposed to look like from a take it from a rough forging to a finished to a finished product. Whether it's a cock or a, a frizzing or a mainspring or a frizzing spring or a, a, a pair of triggers, the mounts, the trigger guard, butt plate. I always said, you show me, you show me a young guy that's got promise. And you show me his trigger guard, and I can tell you more about what that young man's capable of than anything else. Wow! So what, because what? I can tell what he's capable of doing by 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 his trigger guards, because the trigger guard basically encapsulates everything about a gun. Okay. I mean, it's all freehand. Mm-hmm. It's all by eye. It's all it's all got to be in proportion to the gun. It's got to work with whatever trigger you're working with, and it's got to have some sort of style and flow to it. So I can tell you if a guy's got any talent or not by looking at his trigger guard. Okay. Fascinating. So you have that. Okay. Mm -hmm. So you've got blacksmithing, whitesmithing, silversmithing. 
goldsmithing. You've got to be at least, you know, conversational in these different facets of the work. Then you go into the design part, you know, to sit down and take a, a bar of iron and build a lock out of it. Well, you've got to create all the geometry and map it out and make it work. You've got to understand it all. You've got to understand the mechanics of, of, of gun barrels. What makes them work? Breaching. And then you've got to be proficient in engraving, carving on a Chippendale level, engraving, you know, if you're really good, on a Gustav Young level. So you've got, uh, you know, coming up on a dozen major trades that you have to at least be conversational in most of them and proficient at the, at the biggest part of them if you intend to work on the top level. Yeah. It's an ensemble. Yeah. And, and you know, and I've always said I have nothing against flat artists, uh, you know, oil painters, and I call them flat artists. It pisses them off. I just do it to torment them. Uh, but, you know, they really only have to understand one one thing, and that's manipulating the the paint. Mm-hmm. But I'm not, and I'm not diminishing in any right. of that at all. Yeah. But when you're when you're talking about gun work, and that's why gun work was uh, the was put on such a lofty level in Europe at the time was mm-hmm. because, and it literally I'm 61 now, and it's taken me all of my life, and really the last four or five half dozen rifles and guns that I have built, I, I I'm finally starting to be pleased with them. Really. Mm-hmm. Cause there was always something that I didn't, that I just wasn't happy with. Okay. And I'm finally, you know, I've worked on those little things and now I'm, I'm really pretty damned happy with what I'm doing. Well, and good. I'm, getting, I'm getting too damned old to do it. <laughs> you got, you got a few years <laughs> left in you. Let's hope so. <laughs> good Lord willing. You talk about that a little bit, you know, all the different skills that go into making a long rifle. What does the, what does that creative process look like for you when you're looking to build a new, a new rifle? Is, are you, I mean, where you're at now, you know, you have a lot of things probably in your head or you know how to do Mm -hmm. a lot of things, but are you going into books and references like museums and things to get an idea or do you start with pen and paper, start drawing things out, or you just start in the shop and get going and and Well, you know, and that's, uh, that's another wonderful question. And, and, and I will tell you this, the concept is, uh, is always the hardest part. The concept's the hardest part. It, it's like it's like writing a a, a hit song. Hmm. You know, anybody can sit down and put words on a paper that that rhyme. You know, but but to get that idea, to have that hook, to have that idea is the hard part. What are you going to write about? Same thing with a rifle. The concept is the hardest part. What what are you going to base this thing on? And what I do, of course, I love Southern guns. Uh, there's plenty of Yankees up there building Yankee guns. So I'll leave that. <laughs> I'll leave that to them. They can have them. They're great guns, and, and you know, there's plenty of them making them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love the Southern guns because they're rare and that's a whole different, you know, a whole different conversation that we could have take another hour. Uh, but what I like to do is try to kind of pick a little group or a time frame and say, what would I do if I was working in Thomas Simpson's shop? Say, say I was already in a, you know, a journeyman and I came in and I just worked as a journeyman in his shop for a year and was, you know, subjected to his influence and his artistic, uh, whims and fancies and the way he did things. How would I take that and make it mine? Because everybody sees things differently. Right. 
you know. So how would I take if I was in his his shop in uh, Salisbury, North Carolina, in 1778, right at the beginning of the Revolutionary War, when the when the war moved to the South, and I had a wealthy client that wanted a nice gun, what would I build him? That's kind of the way I approach things, you okay. know, because I like to get in people's heads and I like to get in these little subtleties, but I also want to make it mine. So I don't build copies. I don't, you know, even if I'm going to be inspired by something, you know, I don't sit study it. I'll look at it, then I close the books up and put it on shelf. Okay. Because I want it to be mine. And that's where art comes in. You know, that's where the art comes in. Yeah. Is when you're creating something. If you're copying something, you ain't creating anything. You're you're a mime. You're a mimic. I've heard a lot of people talk about, you know, using original pieces as reference, but I, I don't know that I've heard anybody explain it like that, where you're trying to put yourself in the position of somebody who had studied under that builder, not studying that builder. Right. That's a... That's a whole nother level into it that I'd never even considered. Well, and, and I think I probably got to that, you know, because Herschel was such a big influence, mm. you know, in the 1970s when I started out and up into the, you know, through the 80s. You know, he, he was such a big influence and his work was so unique and uh, it was completely different than anything anyone was doing out there. And it was cool as hell. And. I can't tell you how much I respected that, right. but I had the philosophy and, and believe me, this didn't go over too well. I had the philosophy that that was his and I didn't want to parrot that Yeah, because I thought it was a disservice to him. So I wanted to do my own thing, pay homage to that. You know, pay homage to that with iron-mounted guns and the Southern tradition and all of that, but still build something that was mine. Hmm. And, you know, the easiest thing in the world, it would have been for me to copy Hearst's work. That would have been the easy way out. You know, there was so much demand for his work that, God, I could have made a whole career just copying Hearst's work. I didn't want to do that. You know, I've got a damned ego, too. <laughs> And I'll be honest about it. I don't care. You know, yes, I've got an ego and it's big. But, but you know, I keep it, it, it. It's big in the fact that I want to do my thing. Yeah. You know, I am not jealous of anybody else's work. Uh, I'll help anybody, even the, you know, even the master level guys. They ask me a question. I'll give them a straight up answer because I know they can do it. But I've always wanted to do my own thing, and I've always there again, and I encourage, you know, young folks coming, do your own thing. Don't copy my work. I mean, you use it as inspiration, but don't copy it. Mm -hmm. Do your own thing. You know, make yourself feel good, and don't listen too much to anybody else, you know? That's something I've seen a lot of with kind of, I think, the artistry side of all of this is, like you said earlier, it's kind of an art versus task, and the people that are really interested and in, in hands-on with the artistry side of it, I don't think they're as fulfilled making a copy because you're not you're not that you're not feeding that ar artistic hunger that's there when you're making yeah. a copy, and you have to go out and and do it your way and, and learn that way to really satisfy that need. Yeah. Well, and, and there again, I, you know, and there again, I'm not trying to diminish anyone. That, right, that's, right. Not, that's not the intent because everybody, everybody does things differently and everybody has different, uh, you know, uh, the things that they're trying to accomplish, different objectives. And everybody has different, you know, just aspirations or inspirations. And, you know, some folks are just happy to to work on a certain level. And then there's others that just aren't really happy with any damn level. <laughs> and, you know, and, and, and there's room for everybody and everybody. And it doesn't mean that one's any lesser or more than the other. Yeah. Uh, 
You know, it really doesn't. I, I know that's kind of hard to understand, but I, I don't look at it that way. I'm doing what I do because that's what I want to do. Doesn't mean it's any better, any more, uh, any higher level than this, the guy next to me or anything. I don't look at it that way. It's just what it takes to get my juices flowing. Right. Hmm. Because if I was putting just putting guns together, I'd have quit a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> I'd have went and done something I could have made a hell of a lot more money at. <laughs> so what is it about this that gets your juice flowing? You mentioned earlier that people need to find what makes them happy, but what makes you happy in all of this? I challenge. Okay. A challenge. I've always loved a challenge, a challenge, you know, challenge. Can I, can I actually pull this off? You know, can I do this? You know, what, what, you know, what, if you were there, what would you do? There's the challenge. What would you do? How would you make that yours? You know, and maybe picking something out you've never done before, you know, a patch box release or maybe the architectural tweak here or there and trying to make it all work. And, you know, to tell you the honest God truth, now at 61, it's just kind of maintaining uh, th- that that level that I worked so hard to achieve. Okay. Trying to hang on to it. Because hmm. that ain't as easy as you heard it was. <laughs> hey, folks, Ethan here. And I just wanted to take a quick side note and talk about something I just got in the mail this week, which I'm pretty excited about. Uh, I picked up a CVA Acura LR over the winter from muzzleloaders.com, and now that the weather's finally nice enough here in northern Indiana, I can take this out and start shooting, and to do that, I've picked up a pack of Thor bullets. Thor bullets are a premium full-bore muzzleloader bullet, and before you can order a pack like this one that you can hear here, you need to go through and get a sizing pack. It's really easy, it's really convenient, and in the end of it, I think the real deal out of the sizing packs is you get a super nice pre-measured charge tube that you can use later down the line on your hunts or going out you know to shoot at the range so you can pre-measure whatever powder that you're using my cva acura lrv2 actually measured out to be at the bore diameter of 50 50 caliber so i picked up the 50 caliber diameter bullets here these are 247 grains there's a nice little pamphlet inside here that gives you the muzzle velocities at different powder charges, primarily here for Pyrodex, which is is widely available, so that's really nice. But it gives you a ton of ballistics information for 50 yards all the way out to 300 yards with the corresponding FPS energy, path, drop, drift, time, and uh, adjustment for a scope. So this is really interesting, and I'm really excited to get these out to the line and uh, and start kind of tinkering with them. So if you're interested with Thor Bullets, they're not a sponsor of the show. Uh, they're just a company that I've enjoyed working with in the past, and it's been exciting to kind of get into the inline game and um, be able to reach out and ask any questions that I have to Jeff Clemens there uh, at Thor Bullets. So I'd like to thank you know Jeff Clemens for being such a supporter of muzzleloading. Back to the show. So looking at just kind of the body of work that you have and that you continue to produce, a lot of your work is has been in collaboration with your wife now. And mm-hmm. what's it like being kind of a, a dynamic duo of you know, long rifle culture and the artistry behind it? Well, that's pretty amazing, really. Uh, you know, to have someone that, that, that there again, she's... You know, she's at the top of her game. Mm-hmm. You know, Lally is right at the very, the very pinnacle of quill work, and she is an absolute artist. There you go. She doesn't copy anything. They're her designs. She works within a traditional framework, but they're her designs. You know, she invents them, and and it's brilliant work. And and to be able to work with someone like her. Own projects, and we've done some killer stuff. Yeah, you know, yeah. We've done some killer stuff, and it's it, there's no step down or step back on either side, you know. And sometimes we stand and fight just like two gladiators over it. Now, I ain't going to tell you that don't happen. 
Okay. I was curious about that. I can <laughs> well, get kind of heated. Well, you got heated. two alpha personalities, you know, and two two uh, alpha artists. And, and, you know, sometimes there's a little friction in there when somebody suggests something that the other one doesn't think is a very good idea. And it usually goes from me to her more <laughs> than her to me. <laughs> So she yanks a knot in my tail once in a while. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's great. It's great to be able to work with, with someone that's that gifted of an artist, really is. Yeah. Honestly. Hmm. And I'll tell you, when you put, you know, when you put the two of us together, it's pretty, it's pretty hard to deal with. Is it? Yeah, well, I'm just saying, you know, it's uh, art-wise. I'm saying, you know, there's not there's not many many folks out there that can really, especially as a couple or a pair, can really, you know, it's pretty tough to deal with. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of passion there. There it is, for a fact. Absolutely, absolutely. And we sit and talk about everything, and we, you know, we discuss everything, and we figure it. You know, I try to do what I think will really complement her work, and she tries to do what. She thinks to compliment mine when we do work on a project together, which is not often. We don't do it that often. Okay. It's just kind of these, you know, special moments that you guys are coming together on. And then otherwise yep. you're just operating on your own. Right. Okay. Right. Right. She's got her shop and I've got mine and there's a steel door in between the two of them and you can lock it from either side. Oh, okay. So that's how long we can... That's how we, we, we stay married anyway. <laughs> <laughs> how long have you been married? Oh, uh, we've been together since, uh, for 31 years wow. since 19, uh, 1990. Congratulations. Yeah. We made it that far without killing each other. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we've had you know, some interesting, interesting, uh, times. I can imagine. <laughs> were you both young artists then in kind of the, you know, long rifle scene? Then? We were. We actually met at the Eastern Rendezvous. Okay. Uh, we came in. I came in with a friend of mine, and we came in late. It was already dark. and just threw our tent down, had a little open spot there, and woke up next morning, and we were camped next to Lally. Oh, wow. And we just kind of hit it off, you know. Mm -hmm. I wasn't looking for no one, and she wasn't either, so it just kind of happened. Hmm. That's really special. <laughs> yeah, it's been a it's been a great journey, I'll have to say. So what's a what's a day in the life look like for Frank House? I mean, you know, just kind of a start to finish, you know, waking up to going to bed. Is it just long rifles all the time? You know, you're looking at them and thinking about them when you wake up, or is it are there other things that have to get done and you have to go well, through? Well, you know, yeah, I mean, we've got our own little thing going on here. We live in the country, of course. We've got an old house that needs a lot of work. It's the original Lockmaster's house here at Woodbury that was built in 1838, and it needs a lot of work. And we've got other interests. I mean, Lally loves gardening, and I'm a, you know, I do too. And, uh, but her flower bed, she works on her flower beds and I'm an old gear head, you know, mm -hmm. I've got a couple of project cars, you know, a couple of little 68 Mustang GT convertible and a, a boss 429 clone car I'm trying to build along the way. And, you know, Lally real, still really works really, really hard at, at her art. I do too, but I, I get burned out really quick. I can imagine. So, you know, after doing it as long as I've done this, I kind of pace myself. I want to keep myself interested in it. And look, there's some days where I walk out in the shop and I just don't have it in me. Mm -hmm. You know, I, there again, I'm 61 years old. I've been doing this full time now for 33 years. And, uh, been fooling with it for 45. So, uh, you know, there's just some days you just go out and you ain't got it. And you, and you know, if you try to make yourself do it, you're going to screw something up or you ain't going to be happy right? or it ain't going to work. 
So, you know, but it's hard to explain. That's the difference between artwork and, uh, you know, being a, just a craftsperson. Mm-hmm. And there again, I'm not trying to cast any dis- aspersions there or anything else or minimalize or anybody else, what anybody else is doing. I'm just saying that's how I personally have to deal with it. Other right. people with it differently. Yeah. So the hard, the hard part for me is to, is really is staying fired up, you know, keeping that fire going. Mm-hmm. And and sometimes you have to work on it. Sometimes you have to get away from it just a little bit. Yeah. You know, get you a breath, get you a deep breath, get away from it a little bit. Starts frustrating you. And, you know, I've always said, you know, laying out carving is one of the, is one of the frustrating things for me. I'll, I've got a brain that I'm right-handed. You know, most, most really good artists are left-handed. I'm right-handed. So I have to get my brain to flip over. This is true. This is, this is not any BS. So it takes me about three days to really get the right side of my brain to working like it ought to. And I'll stand and draw carving patterns sometimes for two or three days, erase everything I've uh, put down. And on that third or fourth day, walk in the shop and literally lay everything out in 15 minutes. Hmm. And it'd be perfect. And it'd be perfect. Yeah. But I can stand there and draw for two or three days and everything looks like, uh, you know, a handful of noodles that you slung at something. (laughs) You know, just nothing works. Nothing comes together. And, you know, and I've just learned over that time, it's, it's part of the process. Yeah. So what's on the bench right now, then? I've got a big rifle I'm finishing up. Okay. I've got a big rifle, you know, a great gun that I'm really, really, really proud of. Uh, a big uh, early their North Carolina gun out of that Salisbury group down there, hmm. uh, which has kind of become my passion and and, and kind of my signature work here in the last couple of years. Okay. So I'm winding it up, finish the carving on it, and I'm getting ready to pull the barrel out and do the sights, do the silver panels and the inlays on the on the barrel, and by George, get her ready to start coloring. Okay. Woohoo! That sounds great. I think the oh, I'm, oh yeah, I'm excited. The color for a lot of people is really the you know it's kind of heading towards the end. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, this is starting to come down to the fun stuff now. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot of sweat and grunt that gets you to, to get to this part. Right, I can imagine. Hmm. And what uh, what caliber is it? Can you, can you want to share? Fifty four. Fifty four. Yeah, it's a big fifty four. Okay. Forty five inch barrel. Ooh, yeah. Rev or period gun. Mm-hmm out of the Carolinas or that's the, you know, the inspiration. Yeah. Neat gun. Neat, neat, neat. Hmm. If I, even if I did make the damn thing, it's pretty neat. (laughs) (laughs) Man, you're cracking me up. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, there again, I'm not one of these guys that takes myself too seriously. You know, you got to have fun at this stuff. Yeah. You you make eating chocolate pie miserable, you know, (laughs) You got to have a little fun with this stuff. And, you know, and the, the, and the very first step in that is don't take yourself too damn serious. And, you know, it, it's like I said when, at the very front of our conversation. You know, you can't take yourself too serious when you've dedicated your life to something that's been obsolete for 200 years. <laughs> yep. You know, you're, you're, not, you're, you're not playing Madame Curie here, you know. Or, yeah. Jonas Salk, you're not coming up with a vaccine for polio. You're building a damn gun that's been outdated for 200 years. <laughs> I got to remember that. Anytime I get uh, get too serious, I got to remember uh-huh. that. Yeah, when you start talking to somebody and they start like, a, you know, like they're giving you the, the 13th commandment from Mount Sinai, you know. Yeah. You can say, whoa, buddy. 
You're not inventing a vaccine here. Cool out. <laughs> yeah, go get you a cheeseburger. <laughs> and, a, and a root beer and chill out. <laughs> well, Frank, we're getting uh, close to the, you know, the hour mark, and I just want to thank okay. you so much. I Oh, this has been fun. I've enjoyed it. Oh, good. I, I have, too. I, I'll tell you, I haven't smiled like this in a long time. It's It's been a, an absolute <laughs> treat talking to you. Well, yeah, any time. You know, I'm sure there's uh, there's all kinds of different things we could discuss. So, you know, come up with something and hell, we'll talk about it. You okay. Know? That sounds good. Well, and and if you just choose to call bullshit on any of it, you you most certainly have that right. <laughs> <laughs> Will you be uh, out of the shop at all this year? Going to any shows? Yeah, hopefully. You know, things are opening back up. You know, we're going to the CLA show in August, and then good deal. Uh, you know, Mel and Lally and and. Uh, uh, Mel's wife, Angela, we're, we're putting on the sh- uh, show at, uh, uh, Lawrenceburg, Indiana yep. in October. And, uh, so things are opening up and not, you know, maybe hopefully this crazy mess is over. This has been awfully hard on our artists, mm-hmm. you know, no shows, all shows canceled and, and, you know, even worse, all our seminars canceled. Uh, so it's been a real burden on the artist in this, you know, in the long rifle culture. Yeah, that's for sure. So, you know, uh, you know, we, we, you know, let's just hope everybody try to support them and, uh, you know, let's go to some shows and buy some stuff. <laughs> yeah. Let's put some food <laughs> on the table here. Absolutely. Support these folks because they've been hit as hard as anybody. Yeah. Well, for uh, for anybody listening, you know, to the show after after we've gone through all of this, where if they don't know who you are, somehow they've been living under a rock, or they want to find more of your work, where can they okay. go to find that? Well, probably the easiest thing to do would just be to Google Frank and Lally House. Uh, there's a lot of stuff pops up, none of it that Lally and I have put on the the great worldwide web. Uh, but there's been a lot of articles that were written about us that, that, that folks have been kind enough to post. And so there's a whole lot of stuff that, that comes up there. Uh, we, we are on Facebook, although we don't really utilize it much, uh, in our business. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just more of a social thing. Uh, go to the, our Facebook, uh, anyone that's interested, go to our Facebook site for the Contemporary Long Rifle Association. We have a Facebook forum site. We have almost 8,000 members. Wow. Folks, folks post their work and uh, ask questions. And everybody on there is really wonderful to help someone, you know, that's kind of new, that's got questions uh, about a build or, you know, about anything. Yeah. You know, it's a great bunch of folks. Uh, that's a great way to go. And, uh, you know, uh like I said, all of our information's out there. It's our phone numbers, emails, all of that. So, you know, Google Frank and Lally House, and you can get see what we're what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. That sounds good. Thank you very much. I'll include those um, links for people to check out there. And you know, I don't know that anything you know that I've got to say is all that monumentous or monumental or momentous or whatever the hell, however you want to look at it. But, you know, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, you know, you can kind of cut through some of the romance, you know, mm-hmm. you know, at the end of the day, it's all just a lot of hard work. And, and, you know, it helps to have some talent. I'm not saying that, but at the end of the day, it's still just a lot of hard work. Yeah, that's for sure. You know, and so like anything, I've always said anything that's worth doing is going to be a pain in the ass because if it was easy, everybody'd be doing. I could agree with that, Frank. I could agree with that. You know, and that's just the way it is, you know. So, you know, these young folks out here, I'd say, you know, roll your sleeves up, go to work. Don't be scared to ask questions. You know, they've got a wonderful tool that we never had. They've got 
they've got uh, social media. Yeah, they've got the web. They can literally ask a question and get it asked almost in answered in almost real time. And you know, when I was starting out in this, if you had a question, you pretty much had to had to crack the books, go to work, and start experimenting. Because yeah. most stuff you read was all BS. <laughs> you know, it really was. So anyway. I'd like to thank Frank once again for coming onto the show and taking an hour out of his busy day to talk to me here today. It was a great conversation. I'm leaving smiling and laughing uh, like I didn't really expect to. So I, I really hope you enjoyed the show. If you want to hear more from us here at I Love Muzzleloading, you can visit ilovemuzzleloading.com. We have more podcast episodes like this lined up here coming out in the next few weeks. We also have some videos and some articles about everything to do with muzzleloading at ilovemuzzleloading.com. If you want to hear more from us here at I Love Muzzleloading, you can subscribe on just about all of the major podcast platforms that are out there. So uh, if you want to make sure that you're catching each and every episode, you can subscribe on Spotify and iTunes and any of the other smaller ones that are out there. We'd love for you to give us a rating. It helps us get heard by other muzzleloading enthusiasts out there. And uh, as always, I'm Ethan. I love muzzleloading. And thank you so much for listening.